This morning's reading is taken from Matthew 27, verses 1 to 26. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this in the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it, it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Good morning. We'll keep your Bibles uh, open so you can follow along. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this part of your word. And we pray this morning as we reflect on it that uh, you'll help us uh, not understand it only with our minds, but we pray that uh, the truth of what is happening here and what it means for us uh, will transform our hearts and our wills as well. Amen. Well, in our world, there are so many people carrying around guilt, aren't there? Um, 
Imagine a scenario uh, of a child growing up in Nazi Germany. And uh, just imagine the situation. I often think, I mean, what must it have been like for people who grew up in that context? Uh, imagine that all the indoctrination you're getting every day through school, through the community, through posters, through as you walk down the street, you walk into a shop and you have to hail Hitler. And, uh, and I, I sometimes wonder, there must have been Jewish children who gave up their own parents at the time thinking it was the right thing to do, the right thing to dob them in to the Gestapo. And then years down the track, can you imagine the realisation it must have been when, when they look back with sort of a, a clear vision and realise what they've done? Can you imagine what that guilt must be like, that blood guilt of having betrayed innocent blood? And imagine the guilt if you were Judas. On this day, earlier in the week, uh, you'd, you'd made a deal to hand over Jesus to the chief priests and the elders. And we don't quite know why. Maybe you'd just gotten sick of Jesus giving all the money away. Maybe you were not convinced uh, that he really was the king. Or maybe you just weren't convinced that the kind of kingdom he was bringing was the kind of kingdom you wanted to be part of. Maybe you wanted a storm sea Rome kind of, kind of kingdom. But for whatever reason... You've made a deal to betray Jesus. And you had a few days to think it over. You had a few days to change your mind, but you didn't. And so Thursday evening comes and there's your opportunity. You take the soldiers to him. You kiss him on the cheek and you watch as he's arrested. Actually, you watch as he heals one of the guys who came to arrest him. You see all of your other fellow disciples scatter in the night and you see Jesus dragged off like a common criminal you go to the temple you get paid your 30 pieces of silver you go home maybe you don't sleep that night but throughout the night at some point or at least the next morning the guilt sets in and so by Friday morning after a night probably of tossing and turning, thinking, what have I done? You rush back to the place where Jesus is on trial and you rush back and you find out what's happened to Jesus and you find out he's been sentenced to death. And in that moment, the reality of what you've done sets in. In that moment, we read that Judas is seized with remorse. What have I done, you think? Jesus doesn't deserve to die. I mean, in all the years that you spent with Jesus, Jesus never hurt anyone. He never did anything dishonest. He never did anything wrong, anything malicious, anything evil, not even anything unkind or unthoughtful. He was the kindest, most totally honest, most morally upright person you have ever met. And not only that, but you'd actually heard him say and do amazing things you'd seen him perform miracles you'd eaten you'd eaten the bread and the fish and you'd tasted the wine and you'd heard the demons shriek as he cast them out and you felt the waves and the wind and the storm stop as soon as jesus said to 
Maybe you're not sure still that he's the Messiah, but at the very least, Jesus must be a prophet. He must be a good man. And suddenly you realize, hang on, if Jesus dies because of me, I am never going to be able to live myself. I'm never going to be able to live with the guilt. And so you run into the temple. You run to where the chief priests are and you throw down the bag of dirty money that you took to betray him. And you cry out to them, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Now, as Matthew reports in this part of the week that changed the world, innocent blood is the main theme that we're looking at here. Actually, every character who speaks in this section declares that fact that Jesus, the one who is about to be killed, whose blood is about to be shed, is innocent. Judas knows he has sinned. He knows this is not an aw- a lawful arrest. And this isn't something that he can sweep under the carpet. But when Judas goes to the high priest, we see that's exactly what they try and do. Have a look at verse 4. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. How should they have responded? Well, not like this. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. Now just think about what a priest's job is. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, why do you go to a priest? You go to confess your sin. And what's the priest supposed to do? Well, he's supposed to make atonement. He's supposed to offer the sacrifice so that your sin can be dealt with. What's the last thing a priest's supposed to do? Say, don't worry about it, it's not my problem, get out of here. And yet here, Judas comes and confesses and the priests do exactly the opposite. And not only do they brush off the sin, not only do they not offer forgiveness, but they don't care about Judas. They don't care about his testimony. They don't care about justice. They don't care about whether or not they've made a mistake with Jesus. They just want the problem to go away. And so overwhelmed with guilt, Judas throws down the money, goes off, and he hangs himself. And we see in Judas this tragedy, a tragedy of remorse, but not repentance. He's overwhelmed by the guilt of what he's done, but it doesn't lead him to turn to God and to trust in God's character of mercy and grace and goodness. He wished he didn't do it, but he didn't go to God and repent and ask forgiveness. And in this one final act, Judas actually acts out his defiance and autonomy against God by hanging himself. And so Judas dies guilty, innocent blood still on his hands. Well, what do our favourite Pharisees do? Well, they do the right thing, of course, don't they? Have a look at verse 6. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, hmm, you know, actually, this is blood money, so we, we can't put this in the temple treasury. That would be wrong. How wrong would that be? We can't do the wrong thing. I know what we'll do, says one of them. Hey, look, why don't we go and buy a potter's field and it'll become a community service. We can use that to bury foreigners. Won't that be a good thing to do? 
But what's interesting here is that they don't deny that it's blood money. Notice they actually incriminate themselves here. See, if it hadn't been blood money, if it had mainly, merely just been money for a service in the proper carrying out of justice, they could have put it in the temple treasury. They could have done anything they wanted with it. But here, they're acknowledging that actually what's taken place is not justice. What's taken place is not good and right. They actually had dealing with injustice. And so this dirty money can't go in the treasury. And isn't an incredible display of hypocrisy that at this point they're more worried about what's the right thing to do with some money than in the background at this very moment, Jesus is before Pilate on trial. They could waltz over there and they could get him off. But they're more worried about what to do with these 30 little silver coins. They'll happily ignore God's, one of God's ten commandments, thou shalt not kill, so that they can obey their own commands of what is and not okay to do with money. See, it's funny, isn't it? It's, it's a little bit like a drug dealer uh, who declares all of their income to the tax office and, and who even uh, puts in sort of depreciation and deductions on all the equipment in their meth lab. It doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense. But here they are. They're ignoring justice. They're ignoring God's commands. They're ignoring the fact they've just sent an innocent man to die. And they're fussing over some loose change. But what they don't realise is that even what they're about to do with it is all part of God's plan. It was all predetermined. Verse 7. They decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it's been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Now, the more you get to know the Bible, the more you see how incredible it all fits together. Here is, is a quote from hundreds of years before Jesus. And, and, and we see the way that actually it perfectly, in incredible detail, describes exactly what's happening here. Now, this isn't something that Jesus, who's currently standing before Pilate, could engineer. And it's not something that some imposter to be the Messiah can kind of engineer this happening. No, this is just history playing out the way God said it would. And, and the only explanation of how God could, how the scriptures could promise something like this hundreds of years in advance, and it comes perfectly true, is that actually God is behind it all. Now, this quote actually is, uh, it's kind of a mix of Zechariah and Jeremiah, but it, it's, it's most clearly from Zechariah. And Zechariah, writing hundreds of years, uh, he says this. The Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. And isn't that incredibly accurate? It's at the house of the Lord, threw the money down, 30 pieces of silver to the potter. Because it goes to the potter's field. But do you know this actually? Did you notice who 
got valued? Who got sold out by those 30 pieces of silver? See, here it's actually God saying, Israel, my people, sold me, their God, for 30 pieces of silver. God was saying through Zechariah that Israel had turned their backs on him, their God. And yet hundreds of years later, we see this specific prophecy play out and Matthew points to it here and says, actually, when Israel rejected Jesus and sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, he's showing us that actually Jesus is God. And in rejecting Jesus, Israel is actually rejecting God, their maker. By, by putting a price of 30 pieces of silver on Jesus, they're putting a price of 30 pieces of silver on God. By selling out on Jesus, they're selling out on God. In murdering Jesus, they're murdering God. And yet, they think that they're being righteous because of the way they spend those 30 pieces. Well, meanwhile, verse 11, there's another trial going on. Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. That's really interesting, actually. In this whole event, there's only one person who doesn't confirm Jesus' innocence. Do you notice who it is? It's Jesus. Jesus is the only one who doesn't actually confirm that he is innocent. And this actually really amazes Pilate. It's not very often that Pilate would have someone standing before him who he probably actually thinks is genuinely innocent. And yet here is a guy who's genuinely innocent and for once the guy won't stand up for himself. He won't say a single thing. And Judas, Judas has declared that he's innocent. The priests have shown that they know that Jesus is innocent. And now even Pilate's wife shows that Jesus is innocent. And even Pilate himself stands before the crowd declaring, what has he done? I can't find anything wrong with him. But here Jesus says nothing to the one man that could pardon him. But why? Why does Jesus keep silent? Well, that's what we talked about last week, isn't it? This is what Jesus came for. Jesus came to die. His whole life is about this moment, this day. His whole life is about the scriptures being fulfilled, that he would be sold, mistreated, killed and rise again. And so just imagine what it would be like to be Pilate. Imagine the conflict that Pilate's going through. And if it's not enough that Jesus appears to be innocent, his wife does something really unusual. His wife comes into court. She starts to interfere with a case. This is highly embarrassing and unusual. And she starts telling you that she's had a dream about this man. She's had a dream and this man is innocent. 
And she's begging you, don't have anything to do with him. Let this guy go. And so poor old Pilate, he tries, doesn't he? He tries to get Jesus off the hook. He tries to offer another solution. He tries to swap a Jesus for a Jesus. But the pressure's too great. His desire to maintain order and to keep his job kind of outweigh his conscience. And so in this pitiful little display... He gets out a bowl of water and he washes his hands as if somehow he has no guilt. As if somehow Jesus' death has nothing to do with him. You know, it's not my idea. You know, you guys forced my hand. I'm just doing what I have to do. But at the end of the day, Pilate has blood on his hands. Because Pilate had the opportunity to bring about justice. He had the opportunity to free Jesus and the power to do it but he's more interested in his own comfort and security than the innocence of the one who claimed to be God's forever king. But, you know, I think out of all the responses that we come across here, I think the most shocking of all is the response of the crowd. Verse 24. I am innocent of this man's blood, said Pilate. It's your responsibility. And the people answered, and this is just shocking, the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Kill him. It's our responsibility. They actually call down a curse on themselves at this point. Now, I think uh, one of the things, when I was a kid, you know, I liked to get up to mischief. You know, I went to school. I got pretty naughty. Uh, but the thing was, when I got caught, I knew I was in trouble. I knew I was caught. And I, I remember there were some kids that just had that brazen way about them where they'd be in trouble and they just didn't care. You know, those, you know, those people, they're in trouble. You know, it's the people you see on those cop shows, um, you know. And there's some of them that you know, they know they're in trouble. Oh, yes, officer, sorry, mate. And, you know, they're the, they're the contrite ones. And then there's the ones that just argue and abuse the cops and just that kind of brazen, I know I did the wrong thing, but I don't care and I'll do it again. And that kind of brazen attitude is what we see here. The crowd doesn't respond when Pilate says, you know, what has he done? What do you want me to do with him? They don't say, well, this is what he's done. This is why he deserves to die. They don't give any justification They don't try and prove to Pilate that actually Jesus isn't innocent. They don't even enter into that question at all. No, they simply say, we want him dead. His blood be on us and on our children. Crucify him. See, they're so set against God. And remember, this is God. That they willingly call down a curse on themselves. And, you know, they were actually right, weren't they? They weren't right that Pilate had no guilt, but they were right that they had called down that curse. They had called down and taken the responsibility for Jesus' blood, for innocent blood. That blood was on their hands and on their children. And the Jewish people, just as God had promised in that little quote we looked at at Zechariah, the Jewish people sold out their God. The Jewish people carry 
the weight of the burden of the guilt of his death. And a little while later, just a few weeks later, at the festival of Pentecost, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, stood up and said to the Jews, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. In other words, God proved that Jesus is on his team. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, he says to the crowd, you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. See, weeks later, after the resurrection, as Peter tells for the first time in public the good news that Jesus is the risen Lord, Peter places the blame, the guilt, on the people. Now, these probably weren't the same people that had been there crying out, crucify him. But what we see here is that there's this corporate national guilt that every Jew who rejects Jesus takes part in and is passed down from generation to generation, be on our heads and on our children. See, the crowd has Jesus' innocent blood on their hands. Pilate has Jesus' innocent blood on his hands. The chief priests and elders have Jesus' innocent blood on their hands. And Judas has Jesus' innocent blood on his hands. But what about us? What about us? Well, we live in a pretty blood-free society, don't we? I'm really grateful uh, that you can't walk down the main street and see someone in stocks or someone hanging uh, in the gallows. Uh, there's not much killing that goes on around us. Uh, no public executions, no death sentence anymore. Uh, we're not forced into military service where we have to kill. We don't witness many murders, even here in Adelaide. It's nice, isn't it, to have clean hands? But how clean are our hands? Are our hands clean or are there ways in which we have innocent blood on our hands without even realising? Do we belong to a society, do we contribute to a society and an economy where others die for our gain? Do we wear clothes that are made in cheap, poorly built factories that occasionally collapse on their workers? Do we buy products that are made by people whose working conditions are so bad that death in the workplace is not uncommon? Do we contribute to an economy where the people who make the goods that we enjoy actually have nothing of their own and regularly die of malnutrition or of lack of medication because they're so poor? See, we do, don't we? All of us unavoidably share in this corporate guilt, this corporate blood guilt, where actually other people do die in ways that benefit us. We didn't pull the trigger, we didn't sign the sentence, we didn't build the dodgy building that collapsed on someone, but we do share in the guilt. We are complicit in that guilt. There is blood on our hands. And our T-shirts, our TVs, and our bicycles, and our cars, all those things prove it. And, you know, in a similar way, 
even though we weren't the ones who handed Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver. We weren't the ones, the chief priests, who sent him to Pilate. We weren't Pilate who washed his hands. We weren't in that crowd that cried, crucify him. But we actually are complicit in his death. We have Jesus' blood on our hands because he died for the sins of the whole world. He died for your sin and my sin. And we didn't hammer in the nails, but it wasn't the nails that held him there, were they? It was our sin that held him there. It was our sin that took him there. It was our poison we saw last week that Jesus drank on our behalf. It was our judgment that Jesus received. And so while we weren't there, we are all guilty. And we see here what the ultimate evil is, the ultimate sin, the sin that cannot be forgiven. And that's the sin of when God sent his son into the world to die in our place. We turn our back on him. We treat his blood that was shed for us as common, as worthless, as nothing, rather than the precious blood that gives life. We turn our backs on the one who died for us, who died for our guilt and our shame. That is the greatest evil. That is why an eternal condemnation is not at all harsh or unfair. Because we have spat in the face of God's Son who came and died for us. Now as we come to this passage and we see these different responses, we actually see elements of how we respond and people around us respond to Jesus today. See, like Judas, we can kind of be crushed by this weight of guilt, of our sin. We can be crushed by just the horror of what our sin has done, but, but never actually come for forgiveness. And if that's the case, then like Judas, we will die with his blood on our hands. Like the priests, we can kind of justify the sin that we've committed and, and we can kid ourselves that all we have to do is follow the right rules and the right regulations and the right rituals and they all kind of deal with any guilt that we have. It'll kind of cover it up and it doesn't really matter. We can do the pilot thing and we can pretend that we can wash our hands and pretend we're not really responsible, but we are. Or some today, some do openly, brazenly, and maybe there's someone in this room who openly, brazenly says, you know what, I just don't care what you've done for me, Jesus. I want to point us to the truth of why Jesus died. See, he didn't die to condemn us. He didn't die to pile up guilt on our head so that we couldn't bear like Judas. He died to forgive us. And he didn't die to make us guilty. He died to take away our guilt. He didn't come to crush us, but to free us. And later that Friday afternoon, that very same day, as he hung on the cross, as he looked down on the very people who put him there, the people from the crowd, the soldiers who'd beat him and nailed him, the chief priests who mocked him. He looked down at them and he cried out, Father, what did he cry out? 
forgive them. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. See, had Judas turned to God for forgiveness, he would have been forgiven. And that's because Jesus' innocent blood that didn't deserve to be taken was shed as a substitute for guilty sinners like Judas and like me and like you. And if any of those priests and elders had repented of their sin, they would have been forgiven because unlike the blood of the bulls and goats that they sacrificed, Jesus' blood cleanses all sin for all time, full stop. And if Pilate had humbly acknowledged before God his guilt and begged for forgiveness, he too would have been cleansed by the blood that Jesus willingly and deliberately shed. And those bloodthirsty crowds who cried crucify him, well, if they cried to God for mercy afterwards, Jesus' blood, the blood that had stained them that was on their hands, that blood would have washed them clean. And for you and for me and for everyone who comes to Jesus for forgiveness, because he willingly, deliberately poured out his blood for the forgiveness of sins, everyone who comes for forgiveness receives it. And the most horrific event in all history actually becomes the most wonderful. See, it's a great iron, isn't it? that on the one hand, his innocent blood stains an irremovable stain of guilt for those who continue to reject him. But for those who come for forgiveness, his blood cleanses of all sin, of all spot, of all stain. And so his blood is either a stain of guilt or a cleansing flow. It either condemns or acquits. In that, that sermon of Peter's at Pentecost a few weeks later that we mentioned, where Peter said, you killed Jesus. He continued, he said, God made this Jesus who you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, and this is the answer for you and me too and everyone today. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God would call. Now I want to just uh, finish uh, this time this morning with just a couple of lines uh, from one of my favourite hymns. Uh, some of you will know it. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Ever since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die.